Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be discussing what could finally be a Brexit breakthrough or possibly not. We aren't sure. What might Boris Johnson have discussed with Leo Varadkar on the Wirral this week? And could it end the stalemate? Plus, we'll be looking at the state of 10 Downing Street and whether Boris Johnson really has a functional political operation. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, Brussels Bureau Chief Sam Fleming, columnist Robert Shrimsley and Deputy Opinion Editor Miranda Green. Thank you all for joining. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then do subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. Or you could also leave us a nice positive review. A few days ago, Brexit appeared to be in a pretty dire state. Both London and Dublin said the talks were going nowhere, no progress was in sight, and we were heading straight towards another delay or potentially a no-deal Brexit. But then suddenly, on Thursday, Boris Johnson went to meet Lil Varadkar in the northwest of England. The Irish Prime Minister emerged with some of the most positive words we've heard in months about the process. There's now a pathway towards a deal. Progress was being made. And then from Brussels on the Friday, we've entered the tunnel. Talks have intensified between the UK and the EU, raising the tantalising prospect of a deal finally being struck. George Parker, it's been one of those extraordinary weeks in Brexit. So when we began this week, it was from that very aggressive number 10 briefing, which was widely assumed to come from the Prime Minister's Chief Advisor, Dominic Cummings, which essentially said this thing is going nowhere, the EU isn't moving, Dublin isn't engaging, therefore there isn't going to be a deal. And then suddenly everything changed a few days later. Yes, I think we all assumed that at the start of the week that the deal was dead and the mood music was so bad and the briefings after number 10 so brutal that you had to assume that was the case. On the other hand, I think we've discussed on this podcast before that if a deal was ever going to take shape, it was going to take shape at the very last minute, that time had to be compressed. You had to give your opponents as little time as possible to organise against any deal. And that has come to pass. But I have to say, I think most of us would have predicted, certainly on Monday or Tuesday, that we wouldn't be where we are now. So, Sam Fleming, what essentially happened was that it's always been about Dublin on this, trying to unlock this thing. Boris Johnson had put forward these new proposals to compromise, to replace the Irish border backstop. They didn't seem to go down that well and all eyes were on Leo Varadkar to see whether he would engage. And he initially seemed sceptical, but something seemed to have changed on that this week. That's right. I think the key point at which the UK appears to be now accepting is that its proposals on customs as well as consent were not going to work for the rest of the EU, including the Irish. The consent point gave an effective veto on the regulatory arrangements to the DUP, and the customs proposals put a border on the island of Ireland, created huge frictions, undermined the benefits of the Good Friday Agreement, and created massive potential disruptions to business on both sides of that border. So what they seem to now be doing at the UK is accepting that those frictions on the island of Ireland, 
are no longer going to be part of their proposals. They want to try and avoid those frictions. And that potentially could mean that you need more uh, checks in the Irish Sea for the traffic of goods across from uh, Great Britain to Northern Ireland. And they will also now appear to be accepting, effectively giving this veto to the Northern Ireland Assembly on the regulatory arrangements. The regulatory alignment, which was proposed, is also not going to be acceptable. So, George, the choreography this week has been quite striking because, as we said, sort of Monday through to Wednesday, nothing at all was much happening. There was talks at official levels going on between London, Dublin and London, Brussels, but nothing really happened. And then we found out there was this trip to the Wirral where Boris Johnson went up to the northwest and Leo Varadkar hopped on a plane and they went to this wedding venue, a rather bizarre <laughs> location, and they spent several hours, just the pair of them, with no officials, no age, just talking for two to three hours, wandering through the the grounds, looking very happy. And after this summit, if you could call it that, Leo Varadkar emerged and simply said, there is a deal to be done. I can see a pathway to a possible deal and it could be done before the end of October. It was a staggering change of tone. It was. I was thinking it wasn't quite Reykjavik 1986 with Gorbachev and Reagan, but it is sometimes remarkable in politics how when you put two principles in a room together that there's an alchemy and something actually changes. And that seems to have been the case at this meeting. It's the venue for Colleen Rooney's 21st birthday party, a sort of strange choice of venue halfway between London and Dublin. But yeah, the mood did change remarkably. But having said that, Boris Johnson was up against a wall. I think you have to look at the dynamics of this negotiation. Boris Johnson desperately needs a deal before he faces the electorate in a general election. That means he needs a deal in the next couple of weeks. The EU, on the other hand, is keen to have a deal, but not necessarily on the same time frame as Boris Johnson. Therefore, it was up to Mr Johnson to move first. And no matter how you read it, and no matter how much spin you get from number 10, it's Mr Johnson who's made the big concessions here in an effort to get the deal. But this is the question, Sam. We still don't really know what was discussed between Boris Johnson and Leo Varadkar. We're getting some sense about where this thing is heading. But it's quite remarkable. You know, we spend our days trying to know what goes on in these closed-door meetings, and normally we get there. But this has been remarkably closed off and held very tightly. What's your sense? We're recording this late on Friday afternoon. Things could still move by the time people are listening to this. But where are we heading? What is the new proposal that is emerging that could replace the backstop and get this thing over the line? Well, I think the first point you made is an important one, which is that the fact that we're not getting a lot of detail yet is quite deliberate. Both countries, the Republic and the UK and the Commission, have huge incentives to not let too much detail leak out about what is being talked about here. The moment you start getting leaks more broadly, people start finding something that they dislike in an element of that plan, and they start shooting at it, and it starts to disintegrate. What they're trying to do, you mentioned this notion of a tunnel. I'm not sure the commission would use the word tunnel, but they would certainly say this is an intensive period of negotiations, which we were not emphatically in before, before it was very conceptual, quite unsatisfactory. It just talks really between the two sides, not leading anywhere. Now we're entering in proper negotiations over this weekend. This is an extremely intensive process leading up to early next week when they need to effectively take a view in the first half of next week. Can we get to a deal which could be ratified and through by the end of 31st of October? And in particular, could we get to something which would provide a clear plan that the European Council Summit can discuss on Thursday. Now, as I say, we don't have much detail about what that plan would be. It does seem to be a major move by the UK away from the idea of having a border across the island of Ireland. 
that point seems to be accepted by the UK because of the disruptions that I referred to earlier and because the way the UK formulated its previous plans involved huge assumptions about customs arrangements and new technologies, checks away from the border, which were not really very specified and were certainly not capable of being put into a legal document. They seem to have moved on that. They seem to have moved on the idea of consent. They're moving away from this idea of this veto. And instead, some diplomats are talking about the idea of a customs partnership, which is an idea which was raised early in the negotiations under Theresa May for the whole of the UK, not for Northern Ireland only. As I say, the details are rather sketchy at this point, though. So the question of this is, George, essentially we're moving back to a Northern Ireland only solution because Theresa May negotiated the backstop as a UK-wide thing, which, in case anyone's forgotten, it means whatever happens, if there's no trade deal at the end of the transition period, the whole UK would stay in a customs union with the EU to avoid a hard border on the island of Ireland. Now, before Mrs May negotiated that, there was actually a Northern Ireland only backstop, which was just to keep the province tied into a customs union. She said no British Prime Minister could ever accept that because you'd be creating a customs border down the Irish Sea and as well as being a problem for the future of the union it's also a problem for the Democratic Unionist Party who a prop up the Conservative government and B, are very much a canary for Eurosceptics, that Eurosceptics won't back any deal unless the DUP accept it. Now, we've always said for a long time the way to solve this thing is to go back to that NI-only solution because the circumstances around the border are a unique thing for that part of the UK. So what it looks like is we're going to a version of the NI-only backstop mixed with Theresa May's Customs Partnership. And fantastically, you could have first read about this in the FT that our (laughs) colleague Martin Sanders who writes the free lunch email outlined how this could work a couple of weeks ago and this seems to be where it's going. Do you want to try and take us through how this thing might work? It's a bit convoluted. Well, it's really um, a Northern Ireland backstop as proposed by the European Commission originally and rejected by Theresa May by another name. And ironically, it's actually probably a worse deal for the DUP than the one originally proposed by Theresa May in terms of having a rather thicker border down the Irish Sea than otherwise would have been the case. The way it would work would be that Northern Ireland would be in the European Union Customs Union in practice, but in law, it would remain part of the UK Customs Union. Now, that's important because it means that Boris Johnson and Arlene Foster, the leader of the DUP, can say that any trade deal struck by the UK would apply to Northern Ireland. Great. So that means if tariffs are reduced in a trade deal with the United States, then Northern Ireland consumers would benefit from it. But hang on a sec, under this proposal... Any goods entering Northern Ireland would have to pay the EU tariff because it would be treated as being part of the European Union customs area. And consumers who wanted to benefit from the trade deal done by a Boris Johnson government back in London would have to apply for a rebate or rather more in practical terms, the retailer or the importer would have to apply for a rebate to get the lower tariff. So it would involve a lot of paperwork. It would involve a customs border in the Irish Sea, something the DUP always said they didn't want to have. And of course, there's going to be a regulatory border in the Irish Sea as well. So the DUP have swapped what would have been a fairly fine regulatory border in the Irish Sea under Theresa May's original plan, which was this UK-wide backstop. And instead of which, they're going to get a thick regulatory and customs border in the Irish Sea. But the fact it's being proposed by Boris Johnson may be enough to get them over. And that's the big question now. This thing is starting to emerge. We're going to have these intensive talks over this weekend and beginning of next week. And 
everybody's looking for signs of will the DUP accept this and will the ERG, that's the European Research Group of Eurosceptics, accept it? Because one of the big concerns in Brussels has always been, if we do a new deal with you, is it going to pass? Because they kept being told by Theresa May, this will get through, and it never got through. So we're constantly looking for signs. And so far, still very early days, the DUP seem to be going along with this. Well, this is the interesting thing. So on Friday afternoon, the DUP issued a statement saying that They wanted to make sure that Northern Ireland remained in the UK customs territory. Well, legally, yes, they will. They want to benefit from any trade deal struck by the UK. Yes, they will. So it's quite interesting that Arlene Foster has been briefed by Boris Johnson on this proposal. And so far, she has not said anything which would preclude the DUP supporting this deal. And as you correctly said, Seb, if the DUP can support the deal, then it's certain that the vast majority of hardline Eurosceptics will support it as well. So going into the weekend, politically... It looks like a reasonably good position that Boris Johnson finds himself in at the end of the week, rather against anyone's expectations at the start of the week. Sam will be a better judge of how this might look in Brussels. But certainly from a domestic point of view, at the moment, and there's a long way to go, I think we have to accept that, Boris Johnson isn't in a bad position. Finally, Sam, what is going to happen in the choreography of this over Brussels? Because obviously the EU Council is coming quickly down the track and it seems rather implausible we could get this whole thing done and wrapped up by next Thursday, Friday. So what do you think is going to happen in the timeline of this thing now? Well, this is the point, isn't it? These negotiations often do come down to the wire, but we really, really are down to the wire. Every day that goes by, this becomes a bigger lift. You have to translate this into legally binding text Not only that, but you need to translate it literally into different languages, 23 of them. And those legal translations need to be identical in terms of their legal effect, even if they're in different European languages. You need to get it through, obviously, the Westminster Parliament. You need to get it through the European Parliament. It needs to be signed off by European leaders. It's a phenomenal lift to get this through in the space of time that we're looking at. And it's one of these situations where... Every step that you take away from existing language in the existing withdrawal agreement or its precursors adds to the time and the effort that will need to be taken by the legal drafts people and the negotiators. So the more you try and build something new, the more innovative, in a sense, this proposal is, the harder it is to get it through in time. And I think if we reach the middle of next week and it's clear that the sides are two apart from each other, then you will have to start talking about an extension to Britain's membership of the European Union. So if you think about the scenarios that you could face at the European Council at the end of next week, I suppose the one that European leaders would be most pleased to see would be an actual deal on the table, hammered out between the two sides and in pretty good shape for them to sign off on. You may still need to agree on a technical extension in order to get that through, but that will be a matter of a few weeks. Second most likely thing, I think, is that they haven't managed to get over the line and then you need to talk about an extension. That could be extension either because the negotiations fell apart and that you're now looking at an election. On the other hand, an extension to continue negotiating. But obviously, that would be a big uh, climb down by Boris Johnson. And the third scenario is preparations outright for a no deal. The talks have collapsed. There's no sign of them going anywhere. And we just think that actually they need to focus their attentions on no deal preparation. So there's an enormous amount of fluidity in this situation right now as we look at these negotiations. It's very, very difficult to predict which way this will go. Boris Johnson is something of an unconventional prime minister, so it shouldn't be much of a surprise that his Downing Street is a bit unconventional too. 
There's an awful lot of attention on these anonymous briefings that you see pop up in newspapers like the FT from number 10 officials who often adopt a much tougher and more extreme position than the official words you hear from the Prime Minister. So what's going on here? Obviously, the role of Dominic Cummings, who is the Prime Minister's chief advisor, gets an awful lot of focus. But is he calling the shops? Are there multiple conflicting plans inside number 10? And is it all chaotic or planned chaos? So Robert Shrimsley, Downing Street operations always get a lot of focus because it tells you a lot about the direction and what's trying to be achieved within a government. So if we go back to David Cameron, for example, most of the tensions were about his relationship with Nick Clegg and the Deputy Prime Minister. Under Theresa May's government, it was all about the role of Nick Timothy and Fiona Hill were her two chief of staffs. And for Boris Johnson, it's all about this focus on Dominic Cummings, who was the chief strategist of the Vote Leave campaign and the chief and most important advisor to Boris Johnson. Why are people so wound up by him And all these briefings that emanate from him, we should say some of these are often assumed to be Mr Cummings, but they are not always Mr Cummings. I think there are two reasons why people are focused on him. The first is because he's incredibly visible. He's not publicity shy. He's very accessible to the media. You know, he's been played by Benedict Cumberbatch in a soap TV drama. So he has a reputation, this sort of extraordinary political campaigning genius, a reputation he's comfortable with. He's interesting. And he undoubtedly is one arm of the Downing Street operation. As we've discussed before on this podcast, there are essentially two Downing Streets. There's the campaigning political arm, which is led by Dominic Cummings. And then there's the operational arm led by Sir Edward Lister. That works below the waterline. Therefore, the Dominic Cummings one is much more visible, much more quotable, wildly exciting. And I think, therefore, sometimes given disproportionate weight. What I'm not sure is true, which some people have just, is that these two arms are actually in conflict with each other. I agree with it. I think they're working in concert. They're not fighting each other in the way that some Downing Street operations have been. I think that's exactly right, because when Boris Johnson became prime minister, he knew there was going to be a general election in the near future. When you had a working majority of one, which is now effectively minus 43, it's only a matter of time before an election. So within there, you've got people who are campaigners. And obviously, Mr Cummings is one of them. Lee Kane, who's director of communications, is another. And there's plenty of other officials who all see their primary job as selling messages and winning over voters. But Miranda Green, the reason this is all blown up once again this week is due to a post on the Spectator magazine website that appeared early this week, which was from a number 10 official, which is widely thought to be Mr Cummings due to the tone and the language which reflects things Mr Cummings has said in public. And this 824-word text message that was painted was posted on the Spectator website and painted a very different light to the where we're at on Brexit than what Boris Johnson says. Well, that's right. And again, it brought to the febrile political situation, again, this chaotic energy that Dominic Cummings seems to bring to the whole Boris Johnson operation. And so people seized on it. It had quite colourful language in there. At one point, it talks about our relationship with our EU allies, that the presumption that we would behave well towards them was in the toilet. This is not only not parliamentary language, this is certainly not the sort of way that the British government is used to being heard and getting its message across. And there was, of course, a massive reaction and a massive backlash to this published long text message, not least Amber Rudd, now not only not in the cabinet, but far removed from the government of which he was a part, going on the airwaves immediately the next morning to reproach Boris Johnson's operation and by implication reproach the Prime Minister himself for allowing this to be the language and the tone of the British government, which he thought was very inappropriate. I think also the thing is, these interventions, it's not really just the soap opera because they then have real world consequences. And so you've seen the group of One Nation Tories sort of harden their resolve in trying to get into Downing Street 
They got an audience with the Prime Minister and tried to get assurances that there wouldn't, for example, be a Conservative manifesto that promised no-deal Brexit as Conservative policy. So these interventions by Dominic Cummings, whether they're anonymised or not, they shift the temperature and they have a real-world reaction. And therefore, it is part of what happens to the Conservative Party. Because, of course, famously, he's not even a member of the Conservative Party and may not have the Conservative Party's best interests at heart. And certainly that One Nation group feel that. I do think the one thing that's surprising about the reaction to this is that there's nothing surprising in the note that perhaps Dominic Cummings sent to James Forsyth. Anybody who's had any dealings with him and Downing Street since Boris Johnson's premiership began has heard this again and again and again. And a few days earlier, there were briefings to the Sunday Times about how Boris Johnson will will refuse to resign. He won't let the Queen sack him. He'll hole up in Downing Street, presumably with Dad's army around him for security purposes. It's all just sort of slightly off the wall stuff designed to frighten people into thinking that they are prepared to fight out for no deal. But there's nothing especially surprising about this new briefing. It was just that it was published in a way that made people more aware of it. I think one thing that's a useful frame to look at this is if you compare what Donald Trump does in the White House and what Donald Trump says on his Twitter feed, and a lot of US journalists make this comparison. Often he tweets and says things that just don't happen. They're completely disconnected from reality, but they do create whole new cycles, whole manner of debates themselves. And when, Miranda, you mentioned that One Nation group, so they went into Downing Street after this reference in the James Forsyth post that said we were going to go into an election with a manifesto that said we're going straight for no deal. That is now the optimum outcome. And the One Nation group, which they say has about 80 MPs in it, don't want to do this. They said they couldn't stand on that manifesto. And they went to see the Prime Minister. And what's most interesting is that when this was put to Boris Johnson, he said to the group in return, listen to me, not the briefings, which very much suggests this is, as Robert said, not in conflict. And this is something that is very planned, that you do these briefings to create outrage, speak to certain type of voters, create that hardline position. And then when the PM actually does something or gives an interview, you then roll back from it. And in a way, you speak to, say, the Brexit party voters who want that tough language, then also to the kind of more moderate conservatives who don't want to see everything blown up in the way Mr Cummings and some of his allies would. So two things. One is that for us in the media and also perhaps for number 10 who wants to play this game that you've described, which is a sort of Trumpian game, it's really useful to have an individual, a character who sort of dramatises, personifies one half of your operation in this way if you're trying to keep both balls in the air. So it turns on the head completely the old understanding, for example, when Alistair Campbell was an incredibly high-profile member of Tony Blair's Downing Street team. But the understanding was when he had, in his own words, become the story, he felt he had to leave. They're going for the opposite strategy, which is use this guy's acting ability, in a sense, to play this role of the dangerous face of Boris Johnson to sow distrust. Where I slightly part company with you two, I think, is the idea that they can have it both ways. And the fact that within Downing Street, these two groups are not actually in conflict means that it's okay. Because I think it's quite difficult to pull off the idea that there won't be groups of voters who are, after all, the more significant audience for all of this, who will not be really genuinely frightened by some of the Cummings messages and the idea of the British government, its language, the way it behaves, being debased in this way. And I think, therefore, some of these missteps, the prorogation of Parliament, etc., are really quite damaging in the eyes of certain groups of moderate voters who they'll need to keep on side. So then the significance of playing to the Brexit Party audience 
at the same time as being reassuring that then we'll get back to one nation conservatism directly afterwards. I think it's way harder to pull off than they think. I do disagree with Miranda. I've known Dominic Cummings a very long time. And the one thing you can say about him is that he thinks about what he does. These are not sudden outbursts. He doesn't do these things more or less by accident. And the fact they don't always work doesn't mean they're not planned and they're not thought through in terms of messaging. And I think, in a sense, the two halves of Downing Street work to the two different election strategies that they would run depending on the outcome. If he gets a deal and it goes through, then all of the abrasive language we've seen can dissipate because now we've got Brexit done and now we're all about investing in the NHS and the police. And if Brexit hasn't happened, then the abrasive language is exactly the messaging. I mean, the question you're posing is whether we can forget one of them once it's no longer operational. I think it's probably easier because certainly if it's the deal, it's possible to say, look, we have to talk tough to get the deal. So I think they can probably juggle it. Whether they're right in their targeting is a different matter. Well, and Dominic Cummings is supposed to be leaving quite soon anyway. Yes, well, I just want to pick up on the other side of Downing Street here, Robert and Miranda, on this point, because we've talked about Mr Cummings and his hardline approach to Brexit. But when you look, there's a whole bunch of other people in Number 10. A lot of them worked for Boris Johnson at City Hall. And the most obvious figure is Eddie Lister, who's his chief of staff, who's 69 and is a veteran of local government politics in the UK. He's young enough to be in the shadow cabinet. Or party leader, perhaps. But his side is much more focused on domestic priorities and the longer term Boris government because they assume that we'll get Brexit delivered one way or another, we're going to have that election and then we'll have to pick up and do some other stuff. And I think there are tensions, if not conflicts, between those two sides because you're completely right, Miranda, that when you've got to try and reassure business and the city that we're going to be better than Corbyn at the same time talking about flushing our interest down the toilet are two quite different sides of that. But you do have to assume... Once Brexit is resolved, once you've had the election, the Downing Street that replaces it will be much more on the Eddie Lister side of things, you know, and there's all sorts of people involved in that who might come back. Will Warden, for example, who was Boris's long-term communication chief at City Hall, didn't join Number 10, much to the surprise of a lot of people. And I think part of that might have been due to this sense of, oh, well, we're going to have this very different style of government now, but let's see where it goes in the longer term. Well, yeah, absolutely. And I think all three of us sitting here have actually written about the danger of the opposition underestimating the cleverness of Boris Johnson's strategy to become more mainstream on domestic policy. A lot of that, I think you said in your question to me, after the election, I mean, they would have to win that election or at least once again be quite significantly the largest party. And a lot of that domestic policy agenda rests on the idea that they can woo Labour voters who are Brexity in the Midlands and the North and deprive Labour of those seats. It's quite a big ask, I think. If you look, for example, at that fantastic FT story that we had a few days ago, maybe HS2's not even going to go to Leeds anymore. You can't take the Northern voters for fools. And I think there's a lot more doubt in Labour circles that the Tory party can pull it off than perhaps the confidence in Downing Street would indicate. Robert, to pick up on finally something we talked about before, Alistair Campbell is often someone who's painted here as a historic example of a very visible political figure in Downing Street. Do you think the way that Mr Cummings is acting is setting a new bar for this? And that if you look at American politics, for example, White House officials go on TV, they're very well known, they represent the president. Is that a way we're going to go or is this just a blip because of this extraordinary moment we're in? I think that's hard to know. It's certainly true that Officials in Downing Street have slowly become more and more visible and talked about more and more. I think the test, the real test 
is the sense to which they speak for the leader. The point about Alistair Campbell, he had two particular things going for him. One was he was indisputably very close to Tony Blair and in the loop on pretty much everything. So when he spoke, he spoke with real authority. And the other thing about him is that he was much more than a communications guy. He was a key strategist. Information from Alistair Campbell was valuable information in terms of trying to understand what the Labour government was about. Information from Dom Cummings is in a similar vein. He's in the loop. He knows what's going on. And he represents at least a strand of this government. It was true under Theresa May with Nick Timothy. There are people who you know speak for government. And if they get visible, that's not necessarily great for them. But we understand whether they are significant figures or whether they're just mouthing off. If you bring in high profile figures who just mouth off pretty quickly, they're caught out if they don't know what they're talking about. But if they really are absolutely in the inner circle, then they're very significant indeed. I would say that Dominic Cummings is so different from what's gone before that you'll probably get a reversion to the mean. I would certainly hope so after this. Not least in the fact that his whole pitch, even his refusal to wear a suit and tie, you know. He did this week, though. He was pictured this week wearing a suit and tie for the first time. Amazing. But, you know, it's all calculated to convey a certain amount of contempt for the usual way of doing the business of government. I would think that he's a one-off from that point of view. You probably won't get another sort of revolutionary at the heart of Downing Street who wants to basically display the fact that they're only here for a while in order to disrupt. The only caveat to that, and I think Miranda is basically right, is it would depend on the nature of the election, the nature of the campaigning that you need to do afterwards. If they believe that their future lies in permanent revolutionary campaigning, then you will see someone like that again. It depends what they need to be. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to George, Sam, Robert and Miranda for joining us. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard and would like to see some more FT journalism, then do find our latest subscription offers at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Owen McSweeney. Until next time, thanks for listening. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.